Hello, folks. Thanks for tuning in to the latest episode of Vinyl & Vision. Here we are with episode 88. Tonight's very special guest is Mark C. Mark C. is the primary songwriter, guitarist, vocalist for the band Live Skull. For those of you that are not familiar with Live Skull, um, they are this integral band that uh, is kind of known as being one of the forefathers, one of the kind of like founders of noise rock in from New York City. They have a massive catalog, and it's only growing. <laughs> it's only still growing. They they've we've kind of uh, uh, reunited, and uh, they are back at it full time. And they have a new record coming out, uh, which is what Mark explains to me in our conversation, um, as well as uh, some reissues that will, prob- will probably be happening soon. Uh, there's not too much clear information on that, but uh, so I don't want to speak out of turn. But uh, what you're listening to is uh, a song off of their last record, uh, Dangerous Visions. This song is called Debbie's Headache. At the end of the episode, I'm including a small portion of another song off of that same album, called Dispatches. Now, if you listen to some of their later music, some of the, like, uh, their, past, their two latest records, specifically their, their two latest records, I think you can probably hear a close connection to the album that we're discussing tonight, Joy Division's Unknown Pleasures. Uh, that's the connection I made, at least, because I know I have listened to those records, as well as trying to go back into the catalog and listen to some of the older stuff. And... Um, and I do see a, a pretty good connection there. Uh, this conversation was wonderful for a number of reasons. First of all, Mark's got a very colorful and lengthy history in music. And uh, he actually also has a very great connection to Joy Division. Um, Joy Division is one of those bands that has gone on uh, iconically and uh, has just you know, revolutionized music to a degree. Uh, you know, maybe in a, a niche of their form, like a kind of goth music, uh, post-punk, whatever, whatever you want to call it. They've been a massive influence. And uh, and Mark was there from the beginning. Uh, he, he really was. It, it was pretty impressive to be able to speak with him about this band and see kind of how he was there from the beginning, from their very first uh, independent uh, EP release of Joy Division I'm talking about. Uh, to the first full-length record being released and him being right there for it, and uh, and on, you know, uh, tragically had tickets for their U.S. first U.S. appearance in New York City in uh, in '80 before uh, Ian Curtis passed away. It was pretty pretty con- pretty in- incredible, I think. So uh, I think this was a great conversation. Really enjoyed it very much, um, and I hope that you do too. And if you do. All that we ask here is that you please do all the things you do with the internet, like, share, subscribe, comment, rate, review, all of those things. It's very helpful to us. We do really appreciate it. And uh, if you care to help us out in a more financial way, uh, you can always visit our website, psychicstatic.net, and you can make a purchase there uh, in our store. Our store also has a link in the description of it to uh, our eBay page, which we sell there as well. Uh, most of our new material goes there. All of the stuff that's up there is, uh, is pretty much there. Uh, in addition to other things that you can't see, which is surrounding me. I understand that this is dropping on the day before Thanksgiving, so it's a little chaotic. I know I'm going a little crazy myself. So I hope that you guys don't go too crazy, uh, that you're able to enjoy it, enjoy your time, uh, either with your family or by yourselves, however it is you're spending these days. Uh, we, we wish you the best. We hope you, we wish you a, a uh, happy and healthy holiday. 
and uh, we're slowing down now. We're we're getting to that point where it's the time <laughs> it's the time for the holidays. So it's going to be time to maybe sit back a little bit more, reflect a little bit more, uh, enjoy some ta- time with the family a little bit more. At least I know I will. Um, and uh, yeah, so uh, I hope to speak with you folks very soon. It'll probably be a few weeks. And uh, thank you very much, everybody, for tuning in. And we'll talk to you then. Hello, Mark C. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. And I can see you look great. Okay. And I see that you must be in your studio. Yep. Uh, Out in Hoboken. It's uh, it's industrial... uh, compound one of the last remaining artists independent business uh, mm. industrial spaces left and uh Yola oh, Tango wow. has their studio out here oh. <laughs> sonic youth uh i think some of the members still have their studio yeah but, yeah they had it here for years you're saying one of the last i mean i know what that's like i know that uh, gentrification and kind of uh, industrialization in my city has kind of like condemned artists to uh fend for themselves in places do you feel like there's a threat that that might go somewhere oh for sure i mean we're we're just hanging on to a thread here uh at this space because uh the the current uh community board happens to uh they i think they know a lot of people that have spaces here because people have had spaces here for years but as they as they get replaced with newer people that are moving into the neighborhood, then there's less of a connection. But for the time being, they're they're hoping to protect some of the spaces here just because that's it. Otherwise, independent businesses and artists are going to have nowhere to go. Right. Yeah. I mean, and, and you know, we, you need the arts, uh, regardless of what city you live in. I mean, you need some arts. So there's got to be some place for police for yeah, you know artists yeah. to go to. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, I I live in Manhattan downtown, and you know that's the only thing left are uh, uh, legacy artists. You know, either that are are so famous that they can afford spaces there, or they've had spaces since uh, the fifties and sixties. Oh right, yeah, yeah. Oh. There's some of those um, uh, rent controlled places, stuff like that. Yeah, and just people who were able to buy things back then. Um, you right, know. those smart people that got right. in. <laughs> <laughs> I know, well, for some people, it was just a matter of needing a place to work and the spaces were affordable. You know, people who were starting to do well and they could buy buildings for nothing. And, uh, you know, in my, right in my neighborhood where I live, uh, you know, Robert Rauschenberg's building, Chuck Close, uh, Basquiat in Andy Warhol's building a block away. Um, oh, really? Oh, yeah. Francesco Clemente. You know, it, it was uh, at one time it was a real hub. Once Soho, because Soho was a little more, you know, a little more pricey back in even back in the day as it got to be known. Um, so NoHo was just around the corner. Yeah, right. It's a kind of a tale as old as time, really. I mean, all these cities, they they as they gentrify and uh, and industrialize or or whatever you call that exactly. I mean, yeah, they tend to to do that and kind of push artists and and just with the working class in general out. So, but uh, yeah, New York is notorious for it. I can't I can't understand it at all. It it <laughs> I, it scares me to no end. Like the idea of possibly trying to live there. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I I think for most of us, you know, either you you got a space early on, or you moved to Brooklyn early early on. Mm-hmm. If you're coming now, I don't even know what to suggest. <laughs> you live with a bunch of people, you know. Uh, yeah, because even the outlying areas of Brooklyn now are 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 getting pricey and hard to even find a space. Right. Where are you? Uh, I'm in Rhode Island. Oh, what 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 part? I actually live in West Warwick, which is uh-huh. a little weird. Uh, I think our our uh, calling card is the uh, station fire happened in West Warwick. Oh, <laughs> <clears throat> uh, not obviously anything to be proud of, but <clears throat> it's definitely what people uh, know it for. And I yeah, actually I lived down the street from where that was. Wow, uh, oddly enough, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I lo- I wasn't here, like I wasn't in in this uh-huh. town when that happened. Uh, so it was all pretty uh, new to me when I moved here and kind of realized where that had happened. So, right, wow. Yeah. And and you yourself, are, have you always been in New York, or? Well, I, I actually, actually, I was in uh, Providence for for a while. I went to school in Providence, but from the, when I graduated, I moved to uh, San Francisco. Oh, okay. So that was in and right as you know punk rock was in a way i don't want to say dying but it was 1977 so in san francisco is yes when i moved to san francisco and that's when uh you know at that point punk was kind of transforming but um right uh yeah that's and and from there, uh, I stayed there three years and then moved to New York. Oh, okay. So the so San Francisco in the seventies. I mean, uh, I was just kind of uh, discussing adolescence. So that was kind of seventy nine, eighty. Um, so that was like the. I didn't. I still don't know what to call that because it's pow, like uh, power pop is not correct to call yeah, that. I know. I. I but it yeah. was that OC hardcore punk stuff. Yeah. Um. So did you see any of that or? or... Well, I, I was seeing more of X, the Germans, oh, okay. the Screamers, the Dead. I saw the first Dead Kennedy show, <clears throat> a Flipper, the first Flipper show. Um, oh, okay. Um, it was really kind of the first West Coast reaction to punk, but it wasn't really post-punk either. Right. I'm kind yeah. of, uh, to me, it was a little retro in the sense that it was still highly influenced by um, British punk. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and and that was kind of more, at least the bands that you've mentioned were kind of fit more into the stranger realm of like either uh, noise rock or no wave, new wave possibly. Yeah. It's hard to say. It was, you know, it was its own little brand. Actually, I should give it more credit now thinking back since we can't categorize it exactly you know I, for me it was seeming at the time a little retro kind of uh the beginnings of some the, yeah, of the new well, the new punk were, i guess <laughs> right i don't i mean yes flipper was influenced by no wave um but when i first heard that no wave record the Eno compilation uh i immediately booked a ticket to go to new york to see what <laughs> this yeah. was all about so to me even though i was in san francisco hearing all those bands no wave came out of nowhere for me i it was totally unexpected and not like anything really that i was hearing there there was this band uh original band called versus which were just two women a drummer and a singer mm-hmm. and actually looking back they were 
they were in a sense no wave in terms of being so minimal you know like suicide being just synth and voice they were just drums and voice yeah uh, but other than that um yeah i went to new york and uh happened to see uh teenage jesus and the jerks and suicide this is this was like 1979 at Max's Kansas City. And uh, oh, wow. then I knew I had to move to New York. <laughs> That's what <laughs> did I it, loved. Huh? I loved California. I loved San Francisco. San Francisco at that time was totally affordable. Um, the, the It was the tail end, almost very bitter end of the hippie era, even though there were still some uh, coffee shops, et cetera. Mm. Um, but um no one else had moved in to take their place. So punks had a, had a, it was almost like <clears throat> in a way, the whole city was, was just open and you could get an apartment by walking down the street, looking up at windows and you see a for rent sign, walk in, no money down and take an apartment. Hmm. Yeah. And unheard there, of. Yeah, I know. And there was the whole uh, art Institute scene. So there was like a little core of artists who, and, and youthful energy that that was kind of tilting the punk scene a little bit in an arty direction, which I found interesting and, and include a lot of like hardcore performance art yeah. and uh, really mixing of the, the arts, which when I came to New York, that was still going on here. And I still miss that to this day. Yeah. <laughs> the well, complete fluid mixing of all of them. You know, dancers would go, you know, we'd go to your shows, filmmakers would go to your shows, you know, musicians would go to dance concerts or performance art. You know, now it's so all being back to segregated even between genres of music. Yeah. No, I know, I know. And and you know, not to not to uh, you know, cause any further uh <laughs> segregation, but uh, you know, I, I find it interesting. Uh, I just finished a series on noise rock. Uh, a bunch of noise rock bands that are doing the no coast fest in texas and um you know so the idea of genre is interesting to me and you know the band that you have been part of that will probably be speaking the most about live skull is kind of uh, uh categorized or at least uh credited as one of the the bands spearheading the the no wave movement in new york correct well i would say spearheading the the noise rock movement okay <laughs> post punk okay. i mean <clears throat> no wave was kind of no wave was so precious and so specific in a way at least the way i think of it mm -hmm. it definitely inspired and influenced me but frankly a uh, live skull and 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 it and it and and hearing other th other aspects which was not exactly no wave but of the music scene in New York, like Len Branca and Reese Chatham, big, big guitars. Um, you know, the thrust yeah. of the music coming from the guitars. And in no wave, that was sometimes true. Um, but I think really it was the energy of guitars, and we had gained a taste for noise from no wave, so that when we played guitar, it was okay to have a noise, very noisy sound. It could, mm -hmm. you know, to us, it was musical because anything was more musical than than the scratchy weirdness of no wave guitar, which believe me, I loved. But you know, we were trying to add a little more melodic element to it. So I think sure. the fact that we were inter interested in atmosphere and melody, that kind of excluded us to me in a way from being a genuine no wave band, even though 
us in Sonic Youth and I think even Swans are sometimes considered part of the New York no wave scene. And and there's some truth to it. We were True. all following it really religiously and, and we all really were were intrigued by it, but we were kind mm. of the beginning of the next generation. So it was kind of post no wave and yeah. Yeah. So you were right on the cusp too. So, I mean, like, you know, kind of like your experience being in San Francisco and kind of like not knowing exactly where punk was at that point. Yeah. Um, and then the same thing. So that you, you were kind of living it and creating it in New York. Yeah. And, Wild. and that's where for me, uh, the joy division album comes in, uh, unknown pleasures. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, yeah. Well, yeah. uh, so why, when, when did you, uh, get turned on to it? Well, I, I, I still I, I've I've been listening back to my original copy, which I bought in 1979. I actually oh. pre-ordered it. Um, there was a store in San Francisco. You know, in those days, you could go in a record store and there would be you could buy all of punk or post-punk. There would be 10 releases and that would be everything there was. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. you know, only a few stores would carry it. It was a, you know, specialty item at, at first. And uh mm. There was a record store in Berkeley, and and I was living in San Francisco, but I, I worked in Berkeley for a photographer. And um, a friend of mine, and actually my friend Jack Johnston, who was a, a heavy punk fan with a fanzine and et cetera, turned me on to this this you know to punk to punk and post punk in the first place in a way. But he uh, he and I reserved copies <laughs> of Unknown Pleasures. We we knew about Joy Division from, a, there were maybe two compilations that they were on. Oh, okay. Um, and they were just the hardest rocking, but something different about them. It kind of reminds me of Nirvana. Like in the beginning, there were all these bands that, you know, the grunge bands, but Nirvana, there was always something a little different about their sound. So the Joy Division tracks on these punk compilations were like, wow what's there's slightly new sound there something's going on so hmm. we, we we uh called around to record stores that even heard that there was a record coming out by this band and we actually reserved they got five copies of unknown pleasures and, and we had two of them and i remember going driving over there and just getting this record and just yeah couldn't wait was, on the turntable. Was that imported from the UK or was it a yeah, US pressing? Yes. Yeah, no, imported from the UK. It, the original, uh, you know, the textured cover. Oh, wow. Um, that's and... uh, that's a very valuable record. <laughs> yeah, I have a couple of copies. Do I you? Also have their first EP, which is the, uh, you know, that 12-inch EP. I, I think that might even be rare. The original one? Yeah. Yeah. When I went to New York, uh, it was I, I went to Bleeger Bob's, which was the worst record store, but they always had everything. Yeah. They would have like Sex Pistol singles for a thousand dollars even back in the day. Jesus Christ. But, but, you know, there's also a seven inch version of that first DP, I think. Well, that's exactly the thing. So wait, so oh, you yeah, have mine, the 12 inch version? 12 inch version, yes. Oh, OK. OK. Because, yeah, those <clears throat> from what i know those those seven inch versions the original ones that they made no, like a hundred copies of okay. yeah no i don't have one of those <clears throat> yeah they screwed up the 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 um like i don't know if I, uh which which point in the process of the vinyl pressing but um i guess the grooves were were made yeah. too tight together and so like they just it just sounds really it's supposed uh, to sound really horrible wow wow and uh for the most part they gave them away because they couldn't even do anything with them i mean they were so like I guess they were such a poor quality that like they couldn't really sell them. But uh, now those go for like a thousand dollars a piece. Sure, probably more. Yeah. 
probably depending on the condition. Yeah. But the EP sounds amazing. Yeah, a, because they in the uh, twelve inch sounds amazing, and the cover looks beautiful. Right. The, yeah, that I think that's that's why I was reserving an album because I just couldn't wait to hear what was coming next from this band. Yeah, well, and so uh, so what was that like for you? Because you weren't totally familiar, and obviously, like you know, in seventy nine when it's coming out for the first time, you only had uh, your experience with two songs on a compilation for the most part, right? And the and the EP. Oh, and you had the EP. Rather, yeah, yeah, the EP. But, um, yeah, I mean, God, there's so much to talk about that record. But, but I will say that uh, right away, just picking up the object and seeing this this black cover. At first, it looks all black, and then you see this delicate little graphic and white on the cover. No, no name, no record title. I mean, right. think about the time period. This was a time period where punk was just like uh explode you know the, the graphics of punk were exploding graphics huge names spiky hair cutouts black lines across eyes you know everything to grab your attention and just you know screw up the what you expect you know right. and suddenly here's this totally subtle beautiful art piece of a cover like it just signifying that this is something unique this is a gem this is something different this is going to be an experience that you're going to have to take in and uh so 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 getting it was just 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 having the object that was right away like taken aback a little bit like wow this is more than i even expected mm. and, uh, and i opened it and and you know i, I was i was intrigued by this you know industrial art and industrial music at the time too which was kind of going on simultaneously as punk and post-punk you know uh, uh throbbing gristle and and even cabaret voltaire and stuff and uh this cover with that the graphic is so industrial and then opening it up and the inner sleeve has this photograph by i think it's by william gibson not william gibson uh, ralph gibson like a 70s art photographer you know that's pretty esoteric mm -hmm. um, and uh so yeah put, the minute i put it on i was just stunned basically yeah and for me uh, I, I i was first exposed to, to whatever this this later version of punk in san francisco when i arrived there and listening to the you know british 45s and stuff and then it was starting to evolve and with for instance, the, the first Wire album, which I think was maybe 78 or late 77, and then hmm. um, Public Image, and then the Buzzcocks. It was like, wow, something's going on here. The sound yeah. is changing. They're not straight, like 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 uh, Stooges influenced or, or uh, New York Dolls influenced. This is some other influence coming in. It's kind of an arty influence yeah people are starting to think about the music i think and thinking about it as an aesthetic as you know what what do they want to do and and uh i felt wire really started to break like new ground but this record kind of puts it all together to me it's kind of like a defining moment of post-punk because mm. it has a whole aura that begins with the cover and then right with you know into the first song with 
exotic soundtracky noises in the background, but driving bass lines with the intensity of punk, but not so noisy and not so obvious in its uh, character. It yeah. was like, uh, it was so soundtracky from song to song, and even Ian Curtis's singing style and uh, effects vary from song to song to just embellish the mood it's right. a whole you know and uh i think uh that's that's what grabbed me right away i guess you know i studied art photography i come a little bit from an art background not from music at all i never played music until i arrived in san francisco and oh weird okay so yeah, how, how old were you at that time in 79? Well, I graduated from college. So I don't know what that made, 20, 22 ish, maybe, depending oh, on what you were yeah. studying. Yeah. And then a year of, of taking pictures of bands and roadieing for bands <laughs> until someone in a band said, Hey, why don't you join our band? And I said, Well, what would I play? And they said, Well, can you play anything? I said, No. <laughs> but yeah. I, used to, I used to fool around on my parents' piano. So they said, Okay, get a keyboard. So I started there. Um, oh, okay. it, wasn't, it wasn't until I moved to New York and then a year later that I started playing guitar. Really? That's so, that's interesting. I mean, that's kind of a late starter for, for a musician. Absolutely. And I'm paying for it. I'm still paying for that. <laughs> you think uh, so? I mean, uh, you've done pretty well for yourself, it seems. Yeah, I've had... Well, I realize now that I've been playing for a long time that... Uh, because once I started to learn more how to play, at least in my own within my own framework of guitar, uh, you know, I've realized that uh, the first instinctive playing was some of the most exciting stuff. And yeah, uh, well, realized... that there, there's something about that, right? Like the kind of like the pri the primal instinct when when you're kind of creating anything, any kind of art, like the the kind of less that you know formally. The almost better for the creative uh, outlet because there's you, there's no there's nothing to hinder that, right? And and actually, the three of us in Live Skull, basically, we're learning our instruments together. All right. Well, that's uh, like every good punk band, really. Yeah, yeah. Like we were one of those bands, exactly. Except the the drummer who was an accomplished player and that kind of kept it all together, but he didn't join right away. Um, mm. But um. Yeah, so actually, I mean, that's something I didn't think about. So when I was listening to, well, I, actually, I had just started to play music probably about the, you know, late 78, middle of 78. So by the time I heard Joy Division, I was always already transforming from a person that could listen to music as a fan and 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 enjoy it for what it was to then once you're a musician you can never hear music the same you're just dissecting it and hearing for what you want to hear out of it sure but i hadn't totally become a full musician at that point so this album could still affect me the way albums when i was a kid did like like dylan's blood on the tracks or uh um i don't know uh, uh you know in a Led Zeppelin record or something, or Jimi Hendrix, you know, just full on enjoy it for what it is and let it move you in any direction without having to think about how it's mixed or how did they get that guitar sound or how, you know. Right. So I, when this record first came out, I probably just purely listened to it for its end result. And uh, I found that I just, it matched so many of my aesthetics. I just have to say, I didn't mm. play guitar yet, but I loved Bernard's guitar playing. 
and and now when I listen to it now, I still think it's genius guitar playing. It's 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 melodic. It's rhythmic. It's it's not traditional in any way, mm-hmm. and um, it's totally based on building the aura of the song. What right. does a song call for? It's not a matter of filling in the gaps of there's no guitar here. What chords am I going to play? It's more like oh, there's this amazing guitar and 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 amazing bass and drum riff. Now, what can I do to to elevate it to the next level? Mm-hmm. You like every time he he hits a note or a chord, it's elevating the music. Each person in that band elevates the music up. So by the time you have the lyrics, it's just it's in the stratosphere already. It's just so solidly based. And, and, right. and kind of that's that's what I mean about it being kind of a defining moment of post-punk because it's so secure in its footing. You don't know where it is. It's like it it, it like landed someplace alien. I don't know where it is, but wherever it is, they are on some kind of solid ground, even though they're still trying to discover and uncover the mysteries of music and their own thoughts. Sure. Um, yeah. At the same time, it has this heavy grounded with heavy bass and heavy drums that that just makes it a defining record of that movement. Yeah, no, it sure is. And you said something very interesting uh, as you were kind of like mentioning when you first got this record, how uh, you made a connection to the other things that were going on around this time, like Wire, the Sex Pistols, um, I forget who else you may have mentioned, but it was, but it's true how you were saying that that there was a different element aside from the New York kind of New York Dolls, Ramones style of of punk rock that uh, these bands from Britain specifically were kind of like tuned into it seemed so like what were you what was uh, your experience with music leading up to when you discovered joy division like what were you well, listening to and getting into well j- let me just list a few fall live at the witch trials first album which was also i think 1979 mm. the cure three imaginary boys 1979 oh, gang okay. for entertainment 1979 metal box by public image i mean to me one sure. of the amazing all-time records there is 1979 but you know public image started in 78 and i remember sex pistols playing in san francisco which turned out to be their last show ever and my my my, my friends are like aren't you gonna go to the show and i'm like oh, i'm sick of that kind of music <laughs> <laughs> so i skipped it but i didn't make that mistake when public image came yeah public image came and and blew us all away and mm. You know, Jaw Wobble getting up for 15 minutes before the band even starts and just playing repetitive, heavy bass lines. You know, I think they were rediscovering, instead of just being about punk and rebellion and everything, post-punk was rediscovering music from a different place, devoid of all the 70s, 60s, Motown, anything else. They were, but they were with the same kind of uh, passion for trying to see what kind of music you can make and what's what music can affect you. And so mm. and I know when the fall was coming to uh, San Francisco for the first time, it was their it was, you know, their first album tour of their first album. And actually, I got in a motorcycle accident a couple of days, pretty bad one before their show. And I made my friends carry me to the show i was not going to miss it that's how important (laughs) the stuff was to me at that moment i think i was really it was awakening this idea of being a musician in me um 
in a real sense. And I realized that, that even though I, I'm, you know, I'm older, I, I, I lived through the late sixties and early seventies, all the classic stuff, you know, records mm-hmm. that were coming out the doors. I love them all, you know, the, oh, okay. bands, the all these bands, Jimi Hendrix, I got to see when I was a kid, believe it or not. Um, mm-hmm. But, and they all meant a lot to me, but now I was becoming a musician and the music that inspired me, me to become a musician was punk and, and early new wave, you know, like talking heads and that kind of stuff. Mm. Well, did you um, think that, um, was there something in the back of your mind, maybe like, you know, the transitioning from the sixties into the seventies and, uh, you know, the, the, the changing of the arts artistic brain, let's just say, um, did you feel like what you were getting turned on to as far as like this kind of weirder, noisy punk music, um, it seemed more kind of attainable for you as a musician. Like that that's something I can do as opposed to like listening to Jimi Hendrix being like, I don't know what the fuck that is. I know. I heard someone say something like that, but yeah, no, it's true. That's why I love the fall. I love the fall because such intelligent lyric writing, mm. which I would, I studied writing in school, creative writing. And, uh, but I, school was a dead end for me. By the time I left school, I couldn't write. I couldn't, I was at art photography. I studied as well. I couldn't do anything. School had just stopped me up. Punk was a total release. Uh, and and uh, hearing the fall, oh, these were lyrics. These were poems or poetry or lyrics that really grabbed me. And the music, repetitive, simple. It seemed attainable, just like you're saying. Mm. I think that okay. was the fall. You know, the cure, the, it was a little harder to follow as much as i love them but the music's a little more complicated i think and then gang of four wow with like damaged goods that single it, it was amazing but i didn't feel like it was anything i could attain um so yeah the fall fall was the first ones that kind of like made me think oh i could actually try yeah music. sure sure and then uh getting into joy division i mean uh i think i was actually sitting with the record today and uh I, I like the band. I've never been a massive fan, but uh-huh. I've definitely heard them over the years, and it right. definitely has always been something that's uh, that struck uh, struck a chord with me. Uh, at least at some points, you know, like some mm-hmm. certain songs would definitely grab me. And so I was sitting with it, and I was just like, you know what? I should probably try to learn how to play some of these songs because oh. <laughs> they're easy enough, you know. I mean, because yeah. I'm a yeah. I'm a bass player, and I was just like, yeah. the bass is the best part of this these music oh. this songs anyway. Great bass playing. Uh, it's hard yeah. to. Argue. Yeah, with those bass lines. I mean, I I love those bass lines because they are long phrases with strong melodies. Mm-hmm. And if you have that to start with, you can just, it, it makes adding onto it so much more fun, you know, than, than something that's less melodic and, 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 and less and shorter. You know, those are long swing and, and there's like blues and soul and rock in those bass lines. Yeah. And, yeah. and one thing I want to say about Joy Division is it's kind of like the movie Blade Runner to me. Now, if you look back on it, unless you were unless you're older, you probably don't realize that how influential it was on every single movie after it. Right. That's the thing about Joy Division. You go and listen to it now. Well, a lot of people have borrowed from that record. Oh, thousands of people. people. Yeah. So, <laughs> they, but when it came out, there was very little like that. Like I said, there were I, 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 you could 
you could we named them metal box you know uh sure uh, you know uh entertainment by gang of four uh you know there's just a you know what uh, and and one five four by that time wire had one yeah four. and so, even so they're not the same they're it's no. like i mean uh unknown pleasures is still very different i mean yeah it's Absolutely. a contemporary to those yeah. and it's definitely kind of part of the whole uh post-punk movement uh what would come out what would go on to be known as the post-punk movement but yeah. i mean it's totally unique yeah that yeah that that was uh yeah i mean the, all those bands were very different um mm. and uh i think joy division the the really the, i i love that they go for atmosphere it's so cinematic their songs are cinematic you know that's why you know there's those layers of sounds the production on that album even though i know they were unhappy with it because the guitars were so low mm -hmm. and i understand that feeling being a guitarist totally but it allows you to on the other hand to get into some of the other aspects of the sound and there's a lot of sound design in that record yeah that's a good way to punk, put it that's that's something punk had no sound design punk right. was all about just like put your instruments up there record them and you know get it down but this was like this was so thoughtful and so atmospheric and so layered that right. uh um i think that you know and, and and this is me listening to it more and more now when i first heard it i think it was i just loved the bass playing so much hmm. and 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 one other thing is we you know those albums i listed metal box the fall gang of four with the exception of the cure but even the cure then where was the singing i mean it was perfectly adequate singing for punk and and early post-punk but it wasn't knock you dead lead vocalist type of singing hmm. joy division here we go here's a real lead singer you know some i mean people the weirdest thing for me was it sparked in England this whole movement of people listening to Frank Zappa, uh, not Frank Sinatra. Oh yeah, okay. Yeah, because of this this deep, rich voice. I mean, I, to me, it's more like Johnny Cash or something. But um, yeah, I think that was also oh, you know, the vocals. Here's a real singer, you know, and uh, not to have anything against those other bands. And actually, you know, they all developed, but. Um, yeah, this was like almost, I mean, a singer in the traditional sense, but in such an unusual singing in such an unusual manner with such passion and a lot of uh, right. really dark vocal lines. <laughs> sure, sure. And it is, I mean, the whole thing is just like weird and awkward, you know, especially as a first time kind of like, you know, I mean, in 79 when it was released and this is like you're, you're picking it up and hearing it for the first time. I mean, like, yeah, it's it's it had to have been kind of weird the baseline like just the first song yeah. um disorder like that weird progression yeah. he makes from like that really high ends to like that low note that totally sounds sour it's like it's it, it like it shouldn't work the whole all right. of the music shouldn't work yeah it's true i mean it has pop elements in it it has yeah it's crazy and and just the beginning of the album i've been waiting for a guide to come and take me by the hand you know mm. And 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 I mean, it's just like, wow, what, what is he talking about? Who's right. the guy? Who's that? What's that? You know, <laughs> it's like right away the, the 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 mystery the mystery that begins with the album cover, this black cover and this weird graphic, and then this photograph of a hand reaching out for a closed 
door down the hallway. It's all, hey, this is, we're going to present you with something that's not obvious, like punk. That's not decided. That's not just screaming out. We're going to dig in a different direction. We're going to go more uh, interior. And that's the other thing you see. It's something I was like, what is this? There's an outside and an inside to the record. I, I know it's been done many times since, but I don't know how many times it was done before then, instead of side, mm-hmm. side two. Oh, right. Outside and inside. And I think, you know, all the clues are there on the packaging. And I know Joy Division was involved in the packaging, in the design. Oh, um, yeah. So I, I really feel like this is a mature art piece that is thought out from beginning to end and takes you on a journey that's totally unresolved, like all great art, right? but keeps you intrigued all along the way and keeps pointing you to things without pinpointing them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that musically as well as lyrically, um, that's, that's why it just fit my, uh, my aesthetic so well. I just, I was yeah. like, you know, very cool. Can you? T- uh, uh, I think we should probably go ahead and, and get into this record. But before we do, I, I just want to ask you one question. There's something I want to chew your brain about a little bit. Um, based on the whole genre thing I was mentioning earlier, uh, you said that um, you know, no wave wasn't really what you guys were were doing. You were kind of more more spearheading the the noise rock thing. Um, but can you tell me what the difference between those two are? Yeah, I mean. I, I... To me, the real core, no wave for me, are bands like Mars and 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 uh, even even Lydia Lunch's early stuff, uh, uh, you know, Teenage Jesus, where there's no song structure. It's very abstract. It almost sounds like unwritten, totally, hmm. um, and okay. it can go anywhere, and it doesn't need a single thing from music in the past. Nothing. Okay. And no then, tradition. So that, that, all... that's, what, that, that's what I got from, that's what I love. That's the big lesson for me for No Wave, that actually you can do that and still get some audience to be interested in if you do it in such a stark and grand and interesting way. And then Noise Rock, I think, takes some of the uh, peripheral things of, you know, like I was saying before, peripheral stuff uh, aspects of 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 no wave which was getting rid of standard song structure and also allowing the use of noise noise any kind of noise can suddenly be as much of a note and a sound and a melody as anything else so mm. noise rock then it's to me it's people that are getting closer to a rock structure uh, medium length to short songs, multiple songs with ideas that are fleshed out and specific to the song and become obvious as you hear the song. With no mm-hmm. wave, you don't know where they're going to go <laughs> in the okay. song, lyrically or musically. And that's the right. beauty of it. And noise rock, I think, influenced by no wave, but now bringing it back into the pop rock world of of clubs. and Yeah, you know. okay. But that's my take on what no wave and, and noise rock. Well, that that's pretty good, actually. I think that that makes a lot of sense. Uh, I thank you for your for your interpretation of it, because uh, like I said, I've already been doing it, so it's just kind of nice to have somebody that's so experienced and so well versed in it to kind of uh, really, really almost put that cherry on top of this this series series I just completed. Oh, great! Um, yeah. yeah. So, um, 
So I, I said we should probably just go ahead and get into this record. Um, one of the first things I figured out or found out about this record was that a uh, little history is that uh, it was issued on uh, June 15, 1979 as the first album release of on the newly created Factory Records. Um, Unknown Pleasures didn't have the major label support needed to complete compete with the mainstream charts. However, it sold 5,000 copies in just two weeks and proved wow. that independent record labels could be viable on their own terms. Wow. And this is 79, so this is pretty... I don't know, just out of the ordinary for yeah. the time. Um, so where do you feel like the industry of label in the music business is at these days? Um, for me, the biggest change was when Nirvana hit it big with DGC, you know. That's like the dividing point for alternative underground independent labels and then the mainstream getting involved. Um, you know, they make they kind of brought they they brought vinyl back mm -hmm. and 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 i think the great thing about that is vinyl is an object you know it, it goes back to the point of the story division album that's an art piece it's not just a record right. and i think indie rockers have been influenced by that now and they want their records to be art pieces and even big bands want albums because it's an art piece it's a solid object you know it's right. a permanent object and i feel like indie labels and especially now are really important in keeping vinyl afloat and alive and keeping the factories open so they all didn't close and and, and junk their their equipment which was happening i watched it in new york i wanted to cry you know all these uh pressing plants just just holding hearing and and, yeah. and and you know and uh so i mean well, wow, it's such a big question about labels now because, you know, you can do it on your own. You can do it with small labels. But um, I think there's still, you know, there's still rec indie labels that are kind of at that level, you know, factory level back in the day, you know, that are still able to pioneer new bands and, and uh, put out music. I mean, commercial music has just gotten so so far removed from this kind of music mm -hmm. i don't even know what to say about it <laughs> frankly okay. when i was a kid it was all one thing you know we would hear our favorite bands they would play it on the radio right you know dylan's uh like a rolling stone seven minute song was a radio hit you know mm. you know that that's what's a shocker for me with nirvana because i was like oh you know we're never going to hear mm. any look at how great this record is but we're never going to hear it and to my you know i was wrong obviously in that case but that was short-lived i mean look at commercial music now it's i think it's yeah. all produced by the same five people and written by the same five people and yeah yeah there, there seems to be no life in, in in major mainstream music really yeah and so that's kind of why i ask i mean you have a lot of experience uh you know every every record you've put out with live skull has been out on like some you know very uh, notable uh, independent label like uh, Homestead and Caroline and uh, and now Bronson Recordings is what you're yeah. you're working with currently. Yeah. Yes, yeah. I mean, I, I it's uh, it's pretty much all I know. I never really was on a major label, and um, I mean, I find Bronson, for instance, they're they're so friendly and cool, and they're so into it. You know, I mean, that's that's the thing. You know, you can be on a big label and just be a, a number, or you know another right on the label you know but the great thing about smaller labels is you know you're important to the label 
and they generally treat you that way and so um you know it's 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 not it's not like it used to be where there was tons of promotion money tons and and easy distribution everything now is a little bit of a struggle and oh, everyone yeah. has to work on it you know uh you have to hand in a finished product it's got to be mastered you have to have the cover done uh you know we record our own records now um at my studio here and um i usually do the covers or work with someone who's doing at least i do the design mm. and uh we hand in a finished product you know the label doesn't is not is not involved in mastering they're not involved with layout they're not involved you know right um they don't even you know we at the end of live skull we were getting pretty large advances to record so from the beginning the label was involved now right. it's like you have a finished product and you shop it around right you don't get an advance i mean i'm sure you know if you're an it young it band or whatever i'm sure everything's different but in general it's you know now it's a finished product you have yeah. on the record label it's all they can do to distribute it and manufacture it and actually that's a big help that's to me that's enough if a record label can do that that's enough of help okay um now i i was actually kind of curious why um like i know that the the last record that you had uh out uh dangerous visions came out in 2020 2020 um so i was just like what's what's mark doing why why is he gonna come on the show and, and talk to me and then uh, then i realized it seems that you're actually going to be doing some reissues soon well um we uh, we're we're hoping to we had this we began this reissue project the first four records came out our first ep and bringing home the bait uh cloud one and uh <clears throat> pusherman ep <laughs> a cover of curtis mayfield's pusherman um and in the process we we were working towards all eight of the original releases of live skulls to come out in the process tom and i the other founding guitarist um we basically wrote a whole history of the band be like 124 pages in a of booklets and cds through covering each album so the first out for we basically finished all of them but the label went out of business after releasing the first four so the other oh. four are in the works but it's going to be a different label but um included in those reissues i mean if you can find them i mean they have 10 extra tracks each each record included um as a download um the cds have them on it um and a 24-page booklet with photographs, posters, and a his history of basically the New York music scene through the eyes of Live Skull. Um, so, and and they've been mastered correctly and and impressed correctly. So they sound without we didn't change the sound of anything, but they sound like the master tapes for the first time we never had good pressings it was so disappointing the albums every single one of them almost oh. quality wise yeah wow. um that the reissues sound great and i'm so happy with them and and uh it's funny we were i was doing the remastering um at uh at uh the magic shop in soho while bowie was upstairs recording his last album Oh it's really? Kind of, it's oh. kind of amazing because he lives nearby, and and that studio is in Soho, right down the street from where I live. And he lived, he and 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 
Iman had this loft a couple blocks away. So, um, yeah, so that was kind of fun. I felt it was like, oh, yeah, we're back in the day, you know, Bowie's here. Yeah. Huh? Wow, that's wild. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so the, we're working on that. But frankly, uh, we re during, I mean, COVID happened in 2020, right? So right. for a while, I, I was locked out of my studio, for one. And then eventually, when we could get together, people, you know, how it was in that time. But Life Skull did manage to record a new album. Oh, so okay. we have a new album that is recorded, mixed, mastered, done. Uh, we're preparing for the release now. So we have oh, okay. a, the Dangerous Visions, our last record, had, was only half an album, really, because the other side was the BBC sessions from 1989. Oh, right. Yeah. The John Peel sessions. Was Talia singing on those? Yep. I spoke with Talia Zedek. Oh, that's right. Yes. she. Yeah. Unfortunately, she picked my favorite album, <laughs> Junkyard, <laughs> The Birthday Party. Uh, it, you know, it's funny. Once I saw that she picked that, I was like, this is exactly why we all got together, Live Skull and Talia. Yeah. It's crazy because Live Skull, Live Skull was so peculiar and specific in our aesthetic that the whole reason Tom and I played guitar we didn't even play guitar when we we started we we came to New York, started a new band, and put an ad in the voice looking for punk funk guitars. Punk <laughs> funk. I think that's probably the first time there was ever an ad with those two words, except maybe in <laughs> London or something or Manchester. Yeah. Um, but we got every single prominent alternative guitarist in New York to come and audition for us. Really? Wow. And including you know, Vernon Reed. Oh, yeah? That's <laughs> and crazy. others, too. And that will go unnamed because we didn't choose any of them. We were so... We felt that no one had been listening to The Fall, The Wire, Cure, Gang of Four, Metal Box, you know, with, with the way we were, like they were our Bible. Right. And so we picked up guitars because we didn't hear anything and we didn't even know how to play. And we picked up guitars and started playing. So Life Skull was such a close, specific aesthetic. Marnie fit right in right away, amazingly. And then uh, we meeting Talia. I mean, I, I met her in Boston. She was at a show and then we played another show in Providence the next night and there she was again. I'm like, who is this person? And I go up to her and I'm talking to her and I, you know, I said, God, you sound like you know a lot about music. Do you play? She goes, yeah, I'm in this band Uzi. And I said, Uzi, you mean the band that we've listened to nonstop for the past year on tour over really? and over again, that Uzi? Yeah. She goes, yeah. Huh. So I said, uh, I said, you want to, you want to, you want to come and sing on an EP with Live Skull? We, we would, we would be honored and, you know, developed from there, but right. um now I see why when she chose Junkyard as an important record to her, I see yeah. why. We're so Kindred spirits. Medically. Yeah, absolutely. That's well. Well, you know, you did make a good choice too. This is pretty great. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so um, with that being said, let's go ahead and, and get into it. Um, the first track on the record is Disorder.
um we, you kind of already mentioned a little bit about this and uh and it's a great song i think it's weird i think it's a little awkward because like i was telling you like that that bass line is just so strange you know and it just right. it doesn't actually kind of sound too right and now i'm not gonna i i have this little thing here but it doesn't necessarily pertain to this song i don't think i mean uh, it probably is more uh you know more about their their history in general but uh peter hook's bass playing so like that weird style where he kind of like plays in this higher register and kind of goes down to low um, i had heard that you know he kind of developed that out of necessity more more so than just kind of uh his own little uh his own style because uh, he used to play out of a crappy bass that couldn't stay oh. in tune. So, and then also he had a really bad, he didn't have a great amp. So in order to be heard over Bernard's guitar, the higher register was just at higher frequency. So it kind of like, you know, it stuck out over the guitar at, the, at those high levels. So that's <laughs> kind of one of the things that, so he kind of developed this style based on just trying to, just trying yeah. to be heard. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, one thing I will say I, that I have read that, uh, or maybe it was in the in 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 a book or a movie or something that uh, he was playing. You know, when they were first writing songs, he was playing something high, and Ian Curtis said, "Do that, play sure. that." Do oh yeah, that. that and and I think and and another instinctively with such a low voice of Ian, then he's not going to compete with the bass as much when you have that high bass sound mm, that's true but, but aside from the bass i mean to me what about just the way it begins with this drum pattern that is not a drum machine and not a not a drum kit oh right you know it's like oh there's sounds like there's kind of a synth sound in there there's kind of a drum machine feel but it seems like it's played right away you're you're in new territory mm -hmm. and it's so it's so great to hear something new, something fresh. And even before the baseline comes in, okay, we're already in fresh territory. And then that high, really rhythmic bass playing. Yeah. Where is that from? So yeah, right away, I feel like, um, you know, you're in, you're feeling something fresh and unusual. Mm. And then when the guitar comes in, it's just like, wow, that's just the perfect lick at the perfect time and the perfect rhythm, you know? Yeah. It's, it just builds and, and it's already got you. You're already into the record right away within like a couple measures. Well, either you're in or you're not. <laughs> like yeah. by that yeah, point, yeah. You're, you're just like, I don't want to go any further with this or right. you're right. completely immersed. Right. 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 So, uh, well, so what was uh, what was something that like uniquely led to the composition of a of a live skull song, like uh, something kind of awkward and unique, kind of like that situation where where uh, um, Peter Hook had to kind of like make something out of necessity. Um. Well, Marnie first of all played a fretless bass. Okay. And she had no music experience. <laughs> But we were all listening to these records. In fact, we, before we, we, my, we're, we're, I moved into a loft in NoHo, which was about four blocks from CBGB's. At the time, we could practice in my loft. It was a just big, huge space, mm -hmm. and somehow neighbors didn't care in those days. You know, yeah. Um, okay. And uh, we could walk our equipment from my loft to cbgb's when we played there oh, and wow. after sound check we would just walk to my back to my house and, and and marnie and i would 
and you know just as we were just friends but we would sit like in the dark in my loft and i had my brother used to do professional sound and you know uh, slideshows and stuff we had this like sound system huge sound system and we would play like unknown pleasures or uh you know the fall record really loud and just sit there and take it in um and like i said we were learning to play so marnie's bass lines tended to be have awkward structures in them just because she had never been taught otherwise mm -hmm. um and uh an example a, a strange example actually we're now in life school we're starting to do some older songs especially ones that we never played much mm -hmm. which was like the first ep we're now doing the song mr evil and mm -hmm. it's been very it's been hard to just do the beginning of the song because marnie comes in like not on the one but like on the two you know she's she, it's just the yeah. way she hears it right. and uh you know there th that's kind of an example but it's so important if you don't do that it makes the whole song even though it's just the intro sound normal right the right. fact that she starts out coming in at an unusual moment sets you you know it perks your ears up right away like oh this is weird this is different and then it it sustains that the whole song and it's very important we 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 were gonna let it go because it was easier not to do it was an accident right. in the recording session really so, right all, exactly you yeah. know happy accident and, yeah so i mean there that's an example of you know a baseline that um i think but i think all of them can be a little awkward i mean we have one of my favorite songs uh, back in the earth a song that actually john zorn used to cover back in the day which was really uh, wild yeah uh, covering a live skull song i was like where did that come from but um uh that has this like lumbering bass line that kind of feels like it stops in its tracks mm -hmm. keeps, without pausing you're always like wondering how it's going to make it around its passage but that very aspect of that gives it like a lot of heavy energy i think okay yeah that sounds great. Yeah, those are pretty good examples. Um, let's move on to the next song, Day of the Lords. This is the road, the start of it all. No poetry so bad, only sheets on the wall. I've seen the knights filled with bloodsport in vain, and the bodies are tamed, the bodies are So, uh, Day of the Lords, um, I don't have anything necessarily specific to the song, the song, but um, I was doing some research and, and uh, I came across uh, the Lord's Day in uh, Christianity is generally Sunday, uh, the principal day of communal worship. And uh, I know that uh, the band Joy Division had a uh, few scheduled rehearsal times. And one of the main days that they rehearsed was Sunday. Oh. So uh, what does live skull rehearsal schedule look like? Yeah, well, uh, I mean, back in the day, we tried to rehearse like three times a week, um, but we had to do it at, I think, well, we did it, I think we did it uh, any three days, but I think there were usually weekdays, late afternoon, you know, kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, I remember 
later I was in a band that rehearsed in the morning because we had to, and it was, it was kind of really interesting, refreshing. And I think at some point I was talking to Lee or Thurston from Sonic Youth and I think they were saying, yeah, they, they rehearsed during the day. Which to me, I was like, first of all, I'm a night person. I used to DJ after hours. And to me, it's like you hear bands at night, so you should practice at night, I think. But, Hmm. But actually, I think we, we used to practice late afternoons. And uh, but Day of the Lords, um, it's uh, such a heavy song after that first song being a little quirky, like you were saying, and, and having that kind of almost like drum machine kind of pattern on the drums. But it still gets kind of heavy at the end with the lyrics, the spirit and the screaming kind of. All right. But then Day of the Lords is full on heavy, distorted bass. And then these spooky keyboards and just this fragile little guitar line. And and I I, I wrote down a couple of words. I've seen nights filled with blood, sport and pain. Where will it end? Mm-hmm. You know, oh, it's yeah. just like, wow, this is the second song on the album. <laughs> and yeah. very heavy. Very right. Yeah, no. There's something else that I found that there. There's also um, the the day of the Lord is a biblical term, and uh, and theme used in both he- the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament. And there's a quote where it says, "The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and the terrible day of the Lord come." So I think it's possible that this song has something to do with that, like a kind of a, yeah. a kind of a, yeah. I, I don't know. I I think the whole record is is like a reckoning with what it is to be alive and knowing that you're going to die. I mean, it's, Mm. and I think, you know, I've been waiting for God to come and take me by the hand in my mind. That was always like, you know, someone that was going to lead you into the afterlife. So it's, so it's not so freaky or scary or whatever. Kind of like why people looked toward to Jesus. Yeah, exactly. But this is to me, and they use a lot of religious, uh, you know, like day of the Lord's a lot of religious, metaphors but i don't feel like it's religious at all it's spiritual but it could be misinterpreted as such you know because i mean you know what's the difference between believing believing in religion and believing uh just having a spiritual belief you know because like i'm not religious but i i I feel like there is something spiritual in the world that that is that is kind of connecting all of us yeah I, i i feel the same way but Religion is something else, especially organized religion. But it's all about what you believe. Right. right? It's about what you believe. But if you just go for spirituality, it's something you feel or experience. It's not something you're told by someone else. I feel like organized religion, people are told what to believe, what to do. And there's always another agenda in the background. First of all, they want money. Well, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's like... And and it's led to so many horrifying uh, wars and everything else. But right. Uh, so I, I I really think it's important in this album to realize that there's a lot you know there's a lot of religious uh, uh, reflection in a way. But it's it, it it's 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 a different. It's not an organized religion kind of religion religious. But he's trying to deal with this the same big themes that religion tries to answer for people so they're not so freaked out about life mm-hmm. be scared sure jesus right so i think this album they're dealing with those themes the big themes so religion is an obvious place to use some metaphor 
Right. Okay. Well, with that being said, uh, let's skip on to uh, not the next song, but the song after that, Insight. album for me obviously i'm a big fan mm -hmm. is that every time you hear a great song there's another one coming i mean for me the first song right off the bat is is amazing just yeah. it's perkiness and it's just everything and then that second heavy heavy song um and now insight with uh you know it's just uh, it's so like moody and it's to me. It's almost like the morning after some apocalyptic storm. Yeah, and you've survived. The sun's coming out. I guess your dreams always end. They don't rise up just to send. But I don't care anymore. It's just like I've already been through everything. How old was he? Twenty something. Yeah, he, he even has been more than he, that. He talks like an ancient, like an elder, like someone that has already been through all the trauma of life that you experience in a lifetime. Right. What next what do i do with it what does it mean you know i i mean i have this weird thing about people that die young mm -hmm. you like often somehow they know it somewhere that's why they do such great work early on and in such a compact time period i'm thinking mm. about nirvana here right you know, and and Jimi hendrix and sure morrison <laughs> yeah well there's the whole 27 often, club yeah yeah. And it's like they, they, they and, and a lot of artists in New York, especially like one backdrop to everything I, I did in music was it was during the time of AIDS. And I was in San Francisco, which had a huge gay culture and total free for all sexually. Mm. I watched a lot of people get sick, you know, and, and coming to New York, it was not much better. And, um, a lot of big artists died young, yeah. not just musicians, not just oh yeah, people, right. You know, Keith Haring and Basquiat and right. David Monrovich, all these people that I knew that lived down the street from me, they were all dying young, but they did this immense amount of work before they died. So anyway, I, I just think somehow these people that you know, he, he, like I'm talking about him, he's talking like an elder. It's kind of somewhere in the back of the mind. I feel like they've already lived their whole life and they kind of know it. And Right. Yeah. Yeah. And and we'll probably touch on that because, I mean, obviously there's the tragic story of Ian Curtis for, for anyone that might be listening that doesn't know. Um, there, you know, he, uh, the, the weird part about, um, you know, his, his demise was that, like you're saying, it seems like he had some inkling that like, a young person might have this sense of they might they know that it might be coming for them too soon and so they somehow just managed to kind of manifest all of this this art that they want to get out into the world as quickly as possible and you know he had developed uh uh epilepsy and was having seizures 
And I think like, uh, I actually watched that, that biopic recently, uh, Control, which it seems to be pretty accurate. Yeah, it really uh, does. Yeah, it seems like they, like, minus like having to skip over sections just for continuity's sake, it seems like what they depicted was was fairly accurate to the yeah. to the history. And uh, and there's that problem where, you know, we're going to hit that this topic when we get to she's lost control. But um, but the idea that he saw what epilepsy looked like and unfortunately saw somebody uh, pass away to it, you know, for, from a, having a fit or, you know, a, a, a seizure, um, it must have been like something that that switched in him that was just like, oh, that that could be me now. Yeah, I mean, and and to me, the psychedelic part of add into the fact that he, first of all, his music, which they all seem to love doing, is starting to become really big. Yeah, getting a right. lot of attention. Mm -hmm. So that's a lot to deal with on your on its own, first of all, because your whole life is changing. Right. The touring, there's all the attention. You're meeting all these people. I mean, he's already married, I think, with a kid. Right. And now he's suddenly meeting tons of interesting, exotic people that worship him. You know what I mean? On top. So at the same time that's happening, suddenly he has this horror story of these fits on stage in front of people. Right. You know, you work so hard to have this perfect performance or this, you know, watchable performance and then then you're going to be you know having a fit on stage i mean i just can't imagine what kind of heartbreak that is going on inside of you right yeah there, i mean there's so much there's so much that he he, he have it I'm seems okay. like there was so much that he had to going on inside of him yeah. you know realizing that he ha he has a, a finite time uh, possibly due to his illness um his unhappiness in his marriage because he just got married too young. It was just not, a, it was just not a great idea to get married and have a kid, you know, before you're 20. Yeah. And especially if you're going to be touring as a rock star, you know? Right. Right. And I don't think that makes it even that. more difficult, really. I mean, if you, maybe if you stayed in your small town, your little community, it might yeah. be, different. but uh, yeah. So yeah, no, I got married and had kids, you know, later in life. And now I'm just like, yeah, it doesn't really matter. Like, I'm, I'm I don't mind not being in a band anymore. Right. I don't. It's like it's fine. Like, I'm not gonna get out. I'm not trying to get out there and, and get away from my family just so I can kind of be be a rock and roll star again. You know, it's just like it's it is what it is. But for him at that time, I think that it kind of overlapped. Uh, like, not it didn't overlap perfectly. You know, it was just like because he he started the band after marriage and kind of knowing about uh, a pregnancy on the way. And then had no idea it was going to be that, you know, it's just like if he was, he could have just been like, well, we're, we're just doing the band because, you know, I'm just going to play the gigs <laughs> locally anyway, not a big deal, but then getting the attention and, you know, having to to tour and, and try to make something of it, it's kind of like took precedent, especially because of the mortality issue, like knowing he might not be around long enough, wanting to get that out before he passes. So yeah, it's just just fraught with just tragedy, really. Yeah, so sad, such a sad story. I mean, you know, uh, just like uh, reserving my copy of Unknown Pleasures at the record store in Berkeley, I I had precious tickets to see Joy Division play in New York first oh. of America, T tier three, which is you know I don't I don't remember how many people they fit, but 
150. Yeah. Maybe. Right. And I had my ticket to see Joy Division. And I just couldn't believe it. That sucks. Yeah. Unbelievable. Wow. And, and, you know, they uh, postponed the show and came over for the first New Order show before they were really New Order. They weren't playing New Order style music. They were playing Joy Division basically without lyrics, without vocals. Oh, and they okay. opened for a certain ratio. And, you know, they're obviously a headlining band, but now they don't have their singer. What does it mean? Right. And that was one of the most intense shows I've ever seen. It was so emotionally intense when they played. It was just like all the energy of the music was just being thrown out there. Really intense to see. But I was... Wow almost got to see I, I had a friend who went to england to see a gang of four in joy division they brought me back a live cassette tape of two shows so i was i was really excited to see them but wow well i'm sorry that you didn't get to i mean uh, I, know, I think, so I, think I, I think everyone's sorry that you didn't get to because it's just a <laughs> just a shame to lose you know such immense talent you know yeah really sad yeah wow you seem to be like right there, man. You seem to, to have like been at the right place at the right time throughout history, well, musical for, history. For this one genre, you know, it just. Sure. Yeah. Well, either way, I would say that you you definitely got in at a good time, you know, regardless of what you missed. And, and not only that, uh, people talk about the 80s in New York for good reason, because the explosion in art, I mean, there was Cindy Sherman and photography for the first time photography was being accepted in the art world it was no longer uh, a hobby or a, or a right. craft now it was yeah. an art form there were you know there was graffiti art which was suddenly becoming huge and and so post-punk was competing with all these things being influenced by all these things and being connected by all these things you know mm -hmm. um, and and uh it, it made made for a very vibrant scene and you know that's what the first time I saw Sonic Youth, I was like, what is this? You know, it was so sonic and so all those influences of New York. And I remember as soon as I got off stage, the first thing the DJ played was uh, a, a New York downtown club hit, a funk song, you know, mm -hmm. and it's just like this is I love this world. Yeah. It's an open world. It has so many avenues to go in, but it still has this personal, intense, non-commercial music at the core right hip-hop was non-commercial at the time oh yeah so it was a completely non-commercial movement but there was such a congregation of artists that were so interested in new art that it just created this energy yeah well like i said sounds like you were there at a great time so um yeah i feel fortunate about that all right well, we should move on to the next song uh new dawn new dawn fades Another example of, have you heard all the best songs on this record yet? And now this song comes on, you know, and, and look at the first two lines, a change of speed, a change of style, a change of scene. Yes, this is something new. 
they're going for something new here and the sound is new mm. and uh i i think you know and 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 it's and, and it ends it goes to a loaded gun won't set you free you know it's just like those same heavy subjects and i just love the the chord progression in this song yeah it's sure. so i i know it just seems to be like it's so grounded and and one thing about the song like obviously live skull was very influenced by this whole post-punk these these bands these early post-punk bands at least for inspiration to want to play music because finally we're like oh this is music that's artistic expression it's not mm -hmm. just who's the best guitarist or who can sing and dance the best it's let's make an artistic statement and do it in a heavy way you know and uh when live skull reformed we reformed about four years ago by accident we got mm -hmm. three of us got together to celebrate martin bc's studio i think it was 30th anniversary where we had recorded all our records most of our records in the right. 80s and he recorded sonic youth and everybody swans even yeah. ruby hancock and etc um and uh when we got back together in the same room to rehearse for this event it was Rich Hutchins, who was the second Live Skull drummer, and Marnie, the original bass player, and me. And instantly, we started writing material. Hmm. It was just like, you know, that's why we were meant to play together. And in the middle of this song, which is called Details of the Madness, we're playing, and spontaneously, in the middle of the song, we go into New Dawn Fades. No intention, no, no, I mean, basically, I heard Marnie going a little there. I said, <clears throat> it's just like, Marnie, that's, yeah, it's, keep playing that. And and actually, on the record, it's our our first record since the 80s, uh, 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 Saturday Night Massacre. Right. Uh, Details of the Madness, the ending is basically, don't tell anyone. <laughs> well, your but secret's whole, secret. I mean, it shows you how you know how how well known we are that we haven't gotten a million people complaining. What are you doing covering Joy Division in the middle of a song? But yeah, the whole ending of the song basically is our weird version of an interpretation because we never listened to the song or, or tried to imitate. Right. It. But yeah, it's yeah. Definitely the basic song, the basic chord structure of New Dawn Fades, and the fact that we went into it, it just to me it it brought back to where Live Skull came from, where we're still at. We're still trying to do the same thing, make art that's atmospheric, moves you, and has personality. But yeah, but I, it was funny. I, I thought about that after I picked this record. I was like, oh, you know, there's a, there's a pretty strong connection that we actually just spontaneously go into this song that I hadn't played the record in 20 years, maybe. Now right. I don't think Marnie and I, Rich barely knows the record, you know? And so it was, it was really, uh, it was just meant to be. Yeah. Very interesting. Um, I was going to ask you a question about this song, but you kind of like already touched on a little bit of it. Cause um, I have this quote here uh, from, um, from Peter Hook, who was just kind of talking about this song and kind of, uh, he was kind of discussing some of his favorite bass lines and this one being, I think the third, uh, of his choice and it says that uh i suppose the next one would be the same sort of formula which is new new dawn fade so the, this is the one that is very simple 
the the chord sequence of the bass is dead simple right the way through and my trademark in the early days was playing the same bass line right the same bass line right the way through the whole song i think that's an english thing right the way <laughs> and everybody else would move move around it so this song is like that so so simple so powerful you know yeah. um is that is this a, a formula when that you look to when writing um i i have to say that i write uh, for me what I loved about Live Skull was we always had bass players with very strong uh, riffs, bass riffs. You know, they uh -huh. both Marnie and Sonda, they they had the same sense of wanting the bass line to be a lead instrument. That's that's kind of what we haven't said. Joy Division, the bass is a lead instrument. Yeah. They're all lead instruments in this band, but the bass is a very much a lead instrument. And I found that for writing guitar parts, for making music that's not so obvious, if it starts from the bass line, tends to be more grounded. I mean, I, I, later in my music career, as I didn't always have bands or whatever, and I, I, I learned how more to write music the traditional way. You write it on guitar through chords, mm -hmm. make songs. That's way different from having being in a room with someone playing a really loud bass line that they're still working out. And then you start get the, getting the feel and start adding to it. That process is like uh, you get to see the that, that process is more open ended. And I think it produces results that are more listenable long term unless you're a genius like Dylan or something where you can write a song that someone wants to hear over and over again. Otherwise, this way of writing from the baseline first, the prominent baseline, um, that's the most grounded thing. And then the other stuff can can make it keep it interesting, take it and move it slightly in different directions. And you have a more complicated, dense uh, uh, end result than if you have someone that writes a song, lyrics and chords and comes in, brings them in and has everyone play along. Right. So okay. It's not going to be as interesting. So I, I think this I is a really good that. formula yeah. uh, for writing, and Live Skull exploited it. <laughs> and we just naturally did it that way. You know, I don't know if Joy Division did it that way, but I'm just saying that to me that it points to, and it, it sounds in their music like that's the case. I, I think you're right. I mean, that definitely would seem to make sense, especially with the kind of the, the way that you're explaining it. You know, the bass is being so, is such a lead. You know, and then like you can tell with with like the way that Bernard uh, plays guitar over that that it's very atmospheric. And I know that that you know the Martin Hannett production probably had something to do with it because they wanted to be a punk band. They wanted to be like the Sex Pistols essentially. Yeah. Um, but Martin Hannett's production is basically what you know brought them into this very different realm. Um, so I mean, I think think that that he's kind of has to take a lot of credit for for yeah. what Joy Division became. Yeah, I I think so, and uh, um, I mean a couple of things I want always wondered. First of all, is there a you know they always complained about the mix of this album. Sure. Did they ever remix it? Is there a version? There's they, a remastered. Like, there's a 2019 yeah, remastered, remastered. But not not remixed really. I yeah. mean, like like uh, Ridley Scott did Blade Runner. The the uh, the directors. Sure. The director's cut. Yeah. 
director's cut, right? And it's different. I always thought since they were so unhappy, let's hear your version of what the Beatles naked, right? Let it be naked. They were always bummed about all this shit that was added to that. All the extra, uh, you know, orchestration. I I think that from what I had read, it seems that um, I can't remember which members. I think it was like kind of half and half, like half of them, like really liked the finished product and then half of them didn't. Now, I think that ultimately what has been said since, you know, all of these years afterwards is that, that, um, as much as they didn't, I'm going to, I'm going to assume it was Bernard that said that, that, uh, didn't agree with the mix originally. Um, but after all these years, it has proven to be a masterpiece. And then, so he kind of can't mess with it now. Yeah. That's, I'm glad. I'm glad about that. Uh, I'm not. I'm kind of a purist when it comes to a record. Like I kind of want the original record yeah. as whenever exactly. I can, like Absolutely. bonus tracks is okay. And then when you start getting into like remixing and remastering, I'm just like, okay, now you're adding just... songs to an album. You yeah. Know, oh, we, this was recorded at the same time and we really meant to be on. No, that's not the album anymore. Right. Yeah. No. So I you missed your opportunity. I, I mean, put it, put it on something. I, I barely, I, I basically could barely stand reissues period. I want, yeah. I, I want the original, you know, and, and that's why, and, and now I feel weird saying that the live skull reissues sound better than the originals, but um, the fact was it was cheap, cheap, they were cheaply done. So right. just having them done correctly and still not fancy, but it's just a little bit better, but sure. yeah, no, but I, I know what you're saying. I need, I like having the originals because there's always something there that, uh, you might miss out on and it's history right right yeah it's the fact. so right with those things being said uh i'm actually going to skip a couple songs and, and i kind of wanted to actually uh not keep this too long so um <laughs> i think maybe let's do one one more song um and based on what you were saying i kind of wanted to go to uh interzone So now uh, this track was originally styled on the backing track of Keep On Keeping On by Nolan Porter. The band attempted to record uh, the song for a demo commissioned by RCA Records, but after struggling to replicate the song because it's completely different genre of style of music that they had no business being involved with, um, Bernard Sumner took the riff, inverted it, and played it faster, uh, and then the band presented RCA with Interzone. Yeah. You know, um, well, two things off the bat. First of all, Inner Zone, I think, was an alternative title to Naked Lunch, William Burroughs' book. Um, I don't know if they meant it. Th- that's one thing about the song. The other thing is this is one where, where Bernard sings the main, right? And then Ian Curtis does the backup vocals. Is that the song where it's like a give and take? Yes. Acted by a force within it. and. And I was looking for a friend of mine and, and he died some time ago. Right. And the thing is that, I mean, one thing I have to say about the song is Bernard's singing it. Ian Curtis is doing backup, but he's almost doing an entire song on top of it. Ian Curtis had so much to say. That's the thing about this album. That's what you get from this album. Like he had a lot to say. He was trying to say a lot to the point where here's a song that had was fine even without backup vocals, but he had to add more because right. 
you know, that's how much he had to say. And he's, I mean, they're overlapping, almost making them unintelligible. But it also gives this real drama of like, the song is fast, like you were saying, it was speeded up in a way, version of an original riff. And then this give and take between the two vocals, just, it's like a horse race. Someone's edging, who's edging each other forward. And it's just creates this great tension and drama, which just drives the music. So much of this album is driving, driving, driving. Right. That, that here we're near the end of the album and they're, they're even going faster. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's very interesting what you were mentioning because I I wasn't like I remember hearing that in the song and then I was like kind of listening along like li- looking at the lyrics while the music was playing and I heard that backing vocal that was kind of like it's almost ghosting yeah. the the yeah. vocal right so and yeah. it's like and, and it's different words and yeah. so they weren't even listed in the lyrics I was reading I was just like wait so what is he saying over here there's a whole other story that's happening behind this song no it's, I mean this is I mean some people struggle to write lyrics you know or happy to have someone else do a song so they don't have to come up with lyrics but no Ian right. Curtis he just he had a lot to say he had to get it all out he wasn't right. going to be around that long yeah yeah well but, plus you know, had... I don't know what it is but he and 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 you know they that on the first EP, um the the tw- well I have the twelve inch version but I guess it's the same on the ideal for living I think it's called right, the four songs yep yeah um they have that give and take on a few songs and it's very dramatic um oh. so okay. um to hear it here again in a subtler way um it's less I mean on the EP it's really a part of the important part of the song here it's like important but it's 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 down in the mix so it doesn't seem as important as it actually is right right yeah no i I agree with that now because of the song and because of what i mentioned to you about uh how they kind of like came up with this song based on a song that they were actually trying to cover yeah um i was I i don't know if you've ever thought about it before but do you think there is a song in your catalog that you either had directly lifted like direct inspiration from like this or more subliminally? Um, well, one thing is we we only ever recorded one cover. We actually did do a cover, which was Pusher Man, Curtis Mayfield's Pusher Man. Okay. It's kind of in reverse of what uh, 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 Bernard did here because two things happened. First of all, we didn't bother to listen to the song before we did it. <laughs> So it's just what we remembered from our youth, hearing it on the radio. And okay. we're not trained musicians. I mean, trained musicians, they hear a song, they can play it. No, sure. We, we can't do that. We didn't do that. Um, so a couple things happened. First of all, the uh, we didn't get any change. We just got the basic bass line, which is kind of similar to the original, but it slowed down. Instead of speed up, it slowed down and played in a more... Uh, bluesy fashion instead of a uh a motowny fashion yeah, funkish you know, upbeat funkish it's more like laid back and and heavy and then even the lyrics marnie basically mixed two songs together freddy's dead and pusher man <laughs> none of us noticed or even bothered to check yeah <laughs> and so it's kind of a collage of those two songs so um okay. it's funny we'd been listening to music our whole life but when it came to playing we had our blinders on it was just this post-punk bands basically right okay well cool i mean i think that's a that's a great place to to uh put this album to rest 
Right. Um, don't want to get into the last track anyway. Way too heavy. <laughs> and we didn't talk about she's lost control. Well, because we already kind of did. Like I kind of, I kind of, uh, you know, uh, shared the story, the background of kind of where the inspiration for that song came from, essentially. And it was whole the whole epilepsy thing. You know, right. he. Yeah. Um, and one thing I wanted to say though about that, sure. because there's that lyric. First of all, I, I said before, you know, it, the song, the, the album opens with, I've been waiting for God to come and take me by the hand. Mm-hmm. By the time she's lost control, it's, um, uh, she came and took me by the hand and said, I've lost control. So in, when you first think of mm-hmm. a guide, you're expecting someone that's going to be able to get you through the chaos, get you through the wilderness and lead you to your destination. Well, his guide is someone that's, screaming kicking on her side mm. claiming she lost control and this this idea in art that uh you can't control it you don't know where it's going to go it's inspiration it's chaos that, that that's the one of the lessons from no wave chaos can be corralled we had this saying early in life skull we we, we put this quote that was a made-up quote uh harnessing chaos for their own beliefs that that was our first press release <laughs> and i yeah. feel like here these guys were doing the same thing and ridley scott was doing a similar thing it's like trying to open up to all these unknown things unknown pleasures let's talk about the title of the album unknown pleasures you know right. it's like you're in new territory here that might turn out very bad might be ecstatic you don't know. It's probably going to be all these things. And you're not really going to get a, a decent guide to guide you through it. Right. That's how scary life can be if you really dig down into it. And I, I think they're going for that in this record. I, I would say that that's a, a fair assessment. And I really, I really appreciated it. I really admire it. Thank you for thank you yeah. for sharing your insight into this record. I mean, it's been not only has your uh, interpretation been eye-opening to to this album, but just having to sit with this record for as long as I have and really kind of get into it much more than I ever have before, it's um, it's a little dark, you know. Sure, it was. It's it's been a little depressing. It's been a little kind of challenging to to kind of put myself into this place uh, so often and so so many times, but uh, but well worth it, I think. Intriguing, right? Yeah, and you know what? I mean, I'm surprised that I, this hasn't actually been chosen before, uh, and I, I couldn't think of a better person to talk to about this record than than you. Uh, uh, I think. Th- thank you very much, Mark. Yeah, thank you. Uh, really great talking with you. Is there anything going on that we need to know about quickly before uh, we sign off? As uh, far as the band is concerned. Well, yeah. Look for this new album, tentatively called Party Zero. Okay. Uh, it's all new tracks, 10 new tracks for the first time with our current lineup written together. Yep. Um, uh, so I'm really excited because I feel like now Live Skulls become a real band again. And this is the new, <clears throat> the new lineup and it's all new material and it was written together and we recorded it together, produced ourselves. So mm-hmm. I feel like, uh, yeah, we're, we're, we're back in, back in the game. That's cool, man. And uh, when, when can we expect that record? Uh, hopefully by April, May. Um, okay. Perfect. Great. All right, Mark. Well, it's been a pleasure, man. Same.
Final Vision is a Psychic Static production. Theme song written and performed by Jeff Robbins of 123 Astronaut.